So today we're going to continue in our series in Songs of Songs, also called, aka Songs of Solomon. And we paused for a week because we didn't want to do our anniversary service outside and some of our neighbors behind us come out and we're talking about uh, our, uh, you know, someone eating the choice fruits of their lover's garden or how someone's sister was their bride. We're not that kind of church and we don't plan to be in the future. That language hits a little bit different today than, than it did when it was originally penned. But today we're back. And so we're going to continue in, our, um, in this ser- series. And as you remember, the book of Songs of Songs is about a metaphor uh, of two lovers. And over the past couple of weeks, we've witnessed them in the first four chapters of this book. The couple speaks words of affirmations to each other. They, they, uh, they longed for each other, and then now we see that their romance has come together, and they've consummated that romance in marriage uh, over the past t- uh, two, uh, two verses that we just read before our text today. We also know that Pastor Tony reminded us that Hebrew poetry has various layers, and so um, today we're going to take an approach that really does try to honor all of those layers, and so as a quick reminder... The most obvious layer is that surface layer, the meaning of uh, this metaphor, this idyllic marriage or romance. And then we see the next layer down is a meaning that demonstrates wisdom. After all, we are in the wisdom literature in Scripture. And we see this because the couple and other aspects of the book are reminiscent of characters and events in the Old Testament, and we'll see that a little bit today. And the final layer of this uh, book is is that we're reading this book as Christians today. And so we get a picture of marriage, and we know that marriage, because of the New Testament, is a picture of Christ and the church. And so what we're going to try to do is that we're going to try to honor the text with all of those layers today. And so as I read the passage and studied, I found that if I read, uh, you know, every (laughs) commentator I read, I got about three or four more suggestions about what this passage could mean. And so, this is going to be a fun one. So, uh, the first two words of this, uh, our, our text today were very telling. She said, I slept. And so, we're in this, like, idea that she's in this sort of dreamlike state. And so, we are now looking at a dream within a metaphor to let the interpretive games begin. So, uh, but I do want to give you just a little bit more context of the lay of the land here. There are several ways that people have gone about interpreting this text. I want to give you a couple of those very quickly, and then we'll sort of jump into the one that we're going to take today. And so, some have suggested that this passage today is an illustration about the human soul being indifferent to God. And so, while there's a, a lot to be said in the Bible about someone backsliding or being hard-hearted in their faith, it really doesn't make uh, sense to much of this text if we approach it that way. I do think that folks who approach this passage in this way, they're trying to uh, really hard to go away from the surface level meaning of this text and its erotic overtones. There's others who read this passage in a way that they're thinking that this is the bride's dream, recounting what happened in the previous two verses of her first moments of sexual intimacy in these verses that are before us. So they, they might read it like this, the, her beloved is knocking at the door. They read that as her, him uh, pursuing her with his desires. And then they read verse, verse 3 as that, you know, his, her hesitancy uh, towards intimacy. 
And then verses 4 and 5, they record her change of heart towards intimacy. And then verse 5, that's when I think that interpretation really begins to start to unravel. And so what we're going to do is that today, we're going to try to start with the metaphor on the surface, take a journey with this couple after their wedding night, and then we're going to jump into what I can best describe as their honeymoon. And so on the surface level, it's important, it's uh, intentional. The erotic nature of the metaphor is illustrative of the layers that lie below the surface. And so we'll start at the surface, and we'll take a dive into all that what I believe the Holy Spirit has for us to find here. So we're in the story where we should be saying, and they lived happily ever after, except they didn't. And so uh, as we begin this passage, we're going to begin to see them taking one of the cycles that we see three times in the book of Songs of Songs. There is searching, there is finding, and there's consummating. This happens three times in the book, but it, one full cycle happens in this text today. And so, in fact, this is one of the ways that Songs of Songs is reminiscent of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament as a whole, because we see Israel's disobedience and then their faithfulness, and their disobedience and their faithfulness. You guys see that? Okay, for the four of you guys, I'm glad you're with me. <laughs> and so since we're sort of jumping into this honeymoon sort of scene that didn't go as planned, I took the liberty of Googling honeymoons that didn't go as planned, <laughs> and I landed on a Christian site, so it didn't get too cray-cray. <laughs> but, so I have some stories for you. I've curated my favorites. <laughs> so there's one bride who slipped on her dress and tore her ACL. Yeah, it's too bad. I, I don't know what that's like, but I do, I'm, I'm a professor by day, and I have to wear this regalia, which is like the closest thing to a dress I have. I have to be very careful to like pick it up and go upstairs. So like, I, I wish I could have warned her in advance, but um, she and her, honey, she and her um, husband were going to Cancun, Mexico, and she had her knee swollen to the size of a football, and he had to like carry her around in a resort that had no elevators, giving her a piggyback ride and such. So that didn't go as they planned. Another couple, they went glamping. And this is a mashup between the words glamorous and camping, if that's even possible. But anyway, uh, so there was one, so this couple, they, they left for their honeymoon to drive out to their place, and it was two hours farther than they thought it was. Those two hours in your wedding night, I'm sure they were excruciating. And then they, they encountered a bear outside of their little tent room thing. And then they found bats in the room. And then she found a spider in the bed. <laughs> so my wife would have been out because of the spider. The bear, perhaps, but the spider, certainly. <laughs> uh, another couple, they enjoyed their, the first night of their honeymoon. And after they kind of got the mechanics down, they took it to the private balcony the next day. As they fumbled through everything, they looked out on the in the room, and the cleaning crew was in there. <laughs> Rookie mistake. <laughs> Lock the door. Do not disturb sign. A sock over the door handle, something. Like, you know. Uh, so anyway, so let's turn our attention to this couple on their honeymoon in the passage. Okay, so verses uh, 2 and 3. So it says, I slept. But my heart was awake, a sound, my beloved is knocking, open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, one, my, my perfect one, for my head is wet with dew, my locks with drops of the night. I had put off my garment, 
How could I put it on? I had bathed my feet. How could I soil them? Okay, so now we begin our passage today, and this section starts with a woman in this dreamlike state that we talked about. And so as we know, dreams are always producing vivid pictures, but they don't always give lots of detail to those descriptions. And so the bride we see here is doing the same thing that we heard her hearing back in chapter 2, verse 8, the sound of her beloved. This time he wasn't bounding over hills, and, or, but he was knocking at the door. And in both cases, she was uh, inside, he was outside, and in both cases, he was rejected. And so this is kind of surprising because uh, this is not the uh, situation that we had in chapter 2. In chapter 2, they were not married, but now they're married, so this is kind of shocking. And she seemed like she's a different girl than we encountered in chapter 2, who was full of desire. And so her reasoning here doesn't seem to make sense that she doesn't want to partake in her beloved's love. I put on my garment. How can I put it on again? You know, to go and to open the door. I have bathed my feet, so how can I soil them? This is like worse than like, not tonight, honey, I have a headache, you know? Uh, it just doesn't really add up. And so there's an explicit or implicit warning I think is helpful here, is that the adversary often tries to do all he can to, wait, to awaken sexual desire in a relationship before marriage. But then after you say, I do, he'll try to minimize sexual desire as much as possible. And so it's, it's, it's important for us to remember that in marriage, your sexual desires are not automatically synchro synchronized with your spouse. And so couples must learn to love each other. Sometimes that means throttling back, you know, for the sake of your spouse who has had a long day. And sometimes it might mean that you need to lean into your spouse's overtures of love to participate in this aspect of marriage. So I'm not sure why this new bride was cold towards her husband, but she continues her plea, or he continues his plea, and then she has a change of heart. And so and she says this in uh, verses 4 to 6. My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the, on the handles of the bolt. I opened to uh, my, my beloved, but my, husband, but my beloved had, gone, had turned and gone. My, my soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but did not find him. I, I called him, but he gave no answer. And so here in these verses, we are experiencing a range of emotions that she has walked through. She began in verse 4 with her heart changing towards him. And then in verse 5, we see that she begins to drip with myrrh. And in verses, or chapters 1 to 4, it's clear that this myrrh is an aphrodisiac associated with a sexual passion and then, and then we experience her disappointment in verse 6 when it says that she goes to the door and then he is not there. Her disappointment is so deep in verse 6. It says that my heart or my soul failed me. And in the Hebrew, there's this, this overtone of she almost died. She was so brokenhearted. So it's easy to imagine the, the wound she's been dealt here. And so we're, we're not given much details about why the, why the man was outside, but suddenly his departure certainly left a rift in this relationship. And so she, she goes out to meet him and doesn't find him. And so now we have two hurt people. So he was trying to not to get into the room, and then he was turned away. He left because so, he was hurt. Now you have somebody who was being beckoned to that door, goes to the door, and then she finally sort of musters up that courage to do so, opens the door. He's not there. So you have two hurt people, and somebody has to break this cycle of hurt, or it will never end. 
And so, but she's, she's, uh, she's hurtful, she's hurt, but her disappointment uh, wasn't enough to keep her from being true to her marriage vows. She, closed, or she chose to end this cycle and to pursue her beloved. And so our culture would justify her staying there uh, and make, maybe even call her uh, a, a coward for pursuing him because it's let him go. But the reality is that it is that pursuing healing takes a much stronger person than this remaining hurt. And in fact, her actions, they have gospel echoes all over them. Because while we were the ones wandering around in the dark, dealing the almighty blows with our actions, God is the one who pursued us. So we shouldn't wait till somebody pursues us with asking for forgiveness. We should just offer it to them, especially in these intimate relationships. So as an aside, I'm, I'm, I'm not asking you to forgive and just to forget. You forgive to release yourself from the burden of holding on to something, and then you move forward wisely as you sort of go forward in restoring that relationship to the best you can or to the degree that it's appropriate. So Christ's pursuit of, of us led him to the cross, and so her pursuit of her beloved led her out into the night. And so let's read verse 7 together. The watchman found, the watchman found me, as they went about in the city, they beat me, they bruised me, they took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. And so now she's out in the middle of the streets, she's in the night searching for her, her beloved, and she encounters uh, two groups. One is the watchmen of the night, and the second one is the daughters of Jerusalem, and we'll see that in verses 8 and 9. And so uh, it was not the best idea for her to be out in the night, especially in that cultural context, looking for her beloved. But as we know, and maybe have experienced, love and logic don't always intersect. Her dream takes a terrible turn here. And so we see her beaten by those charged to protect her. And it's likely that she was mistaken for a prostitute because she was wearing her veil that was meant for the bedroom. Now she's outdoors in public. And so this is one of those scenes of the dream that goes by quickly but has no real resolution. And so despite this being a dream, I can only imagine that this scene does elicit emotional responses from people in the room. And so while the story moves past this scene very quickly, it's right for us to pause and lament the terrible uh, evils of physical abuse. And even some commentators read this as there's sexual abuse alluded to in this passage. I long for the day when night no longer conjures up fear in people. We can walk around without fearing those who are around us. And for those who put their faith in Christ, that day is coming. That day is coming when we will no longer fear or have dread of violence when we walk around at night. And one day, King Jesus will rule and reign in peace. And this fear and the, and the experiences that we've had in this room will no longer be potentially our reality again. And because of that, we say, come quickly Lord Jesus. So if you're dealing with something of that sort, that makes verse 7 a challenge to read. Your pastors love you. We want to enter into your pain with you, to lament with you, to walk towards restoration with you. And so after her mysterious encounter with the watchman, she, she encounters the, the daughters of Jerusalem in verses 8 and 9. It says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved that you tell him, I am sick with love. Verse 9, what is your beloved more than another beloved, a most beautiful among women, 
What is your beloved more than another beloved that you adjure us? And so I, I like that word adjure. It's just like a, it's a new one. Only but a goodie. And so this is the epitome here of for better or for worse. And she's, she's received no help from the watchman, and now she's going out into the streets to talk to her girlfriends to see if they can help her to find him. And her, uh, she appeals to them, and her friends basically say this, is he really worth it? Isn't this that man who you tried to, he tried to dance in your lilies and he just walked out because you said no? Is he really worth finding? Girl, you should just let him go. I say, you let him go and he'll find that you're the best thing that he's ever had and he'll, crawl, he'll come crawling back. And when he comes crawling back, you make him beg. That's the way I interpreted it when I read it. <laughs> Maybe I was alone, but that's, anyway, so... Welcome into my mind. So uh, their question, anyway, so their, their questions caused her to reflect on her groom, and, and she began to describe him in this way to the women. Let's start in verse uh, 10, and we'll go to 16. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves. Beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are, are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping with liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold, set with jewels. His body is polished ivory, bedecked with sapphires. I mean, this is just, she's just lavishing it on him. I, I, I want, can you talk to me like this, babe? I, sapphire. <laughs> I like that. His legs are like our alabaster columns set on, on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, uh, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. So she, she goes right in, she jumps right into this description of her beloved, and she starts describing him from head to toe. And this is not the first time we see this kind of a description in this book, and this is called a wasif. A wasif is the type of, yeah, a wasif. This is the kind of poetry that we see uh, in ancient Egyptian history, and but th this is appearing various places in the New Testament. So there's a wasif about Jesus in the book of Revelation. And so this is not just something that's for sort of relational or central dynamics. It can also reflect honor in this context as well. And so let me hit the high points of, the, of her description. Verse 10, the brevity of the introduction demonstrates the assertiveness of her love. She says that he is uh, disting distinguished among 10,000. Verse 11, his head is of gold, a description that refers to his glowing appearance. Verse 12, the doves. Well, you know, there's, my go-to is not like to call Stephanie's eyes like doves, but hey, if that's your thing, go for it. But what I think is a little bit weird is all this discussion about milk. I don't want milk under my tongue. This is, that's, in, that's in chapter 4, verse 11. That doesn't sound enticing. Uh, I, I don't want milk in my wine either. I think it would curdle if that's a thing. I, I certainly don't want it to be bathed in milk, which is what we have in verse 12. I mean, that sounds like a reason to take a bath, not a good thing. But in, anyway, I, I just, milk. And so um, let's continue. 
There's, there's no way to button that up. It's milk? It's, it's, they didn't have refrigerators. It's all warm. Anyway, uh, verse 13, she describes his cheeks and lips. Uh, this is not to give a visual, but to describe their impact on her. And she describes his lips dripping with the same aphrodisiac myrrh that she describes dripping from her hands in verse 5. And so verse 15, we skip down a a statue-like description that conveys a man who has a sense of nobility and strength. And we come to verse 16. It celebrates the sweet uh, taste of his fruit by focusing on his lips. We see that in verses 13 and 16. But at the very end of that, this this is my favorite part about this. She says it this way. This is my beloved, and he is my friend. And so one thing that's evident in her, uh, in her love for him, she loves all of him. And so this is expressed by his, her love for his character, uh, her love for his physical body, and all of his other qualities. And this gestures towards God's design for marriage, uh, enjoying the totality of a person. They are both lovers, and they're also friends. And so this doesn't, this, uh, this doesn't matter where you begin. There's some people who begin a relationship and they have sparks right away, but over time they become, you know, they have this deep relational bond. There's other sort of wonderful couples who have a, plat- a platonic relationship for a long period of time and all of a sudden sparks fly and then they are married. And so no matter where you begin, both dimensions are essential for a good marriage and also to fulfill God's design for sexuality. So if you allow me to just dig in for a moment here, contrary to our culture, sex alone is not the glue that holds relationships together. Contrary to our culture, sex alone is not the glue that holds relationships together. I've heard people say that, oh, we're just sleeping together to give it a try to see if we have some chemistry. That's completely inverted because at the end of the day, relationships are based upon commitment and not sex. Similar to the fact that marriage is not an end unto itself because we know that because of Ephesians, it's a picture of Christ and the church. The same goes for human sexuality. The erotic elements in this song are a physical manifestation of a desire to be known. Okay? Of a desire to be known. So a man and a woman come together in a covenant relationship of marriage with a desire to be known. Self-giving, love, and forgiveness should rule and reign. And this grants both people the boldness to be transparent and and be known, warts and all. We want somebody who's going to love us, but know us comprehensively. That's our desire. And so here's the thing. Sex, even inside biblical marriage, will never fulfill the longings to be known. Its purpose is to reveal the depth of our longing that will never be met by another human being. Our desire to be fully known and perfectly loved is to be perfectly loved and that will only be met in Christ Jesus. You guys with me on that? We have this desire that we just can't put to bed. We just want to be known. We want want someone to know us fully, to know all of us. And God's saying, yes! And the way you get there is not by this. That's just a means of demonstrating that there's this powerful desire that we have to look beyond that. What does that point to? It points to our desire to be known. It points to our need for Christ because Christ is the only one who actually knows us fully and fully accepts us. 
This is the point of, this, uh, of, 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 our, of our sexual desires, this desire in marriage and even outside of it. It's pointing us to something so much greater than itself. And so it's true when Chesterton said that every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. And I actually never understood that really until I got into this text. Everyone who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. They're looking to be known. They're looking to be loved. And as Augustine said, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in him. And so until we find the one who truly knows us, we're going to look for ways that sort of illustrate our desire to be known. And that right now, we we see in this passage, is sexuality. This is why pornography and prostitution and sleeping around are so devastating because so many are looking for a physical act to meet what is ultimately a relational need. And so sexuality, sexual activities scream, I want to be known, I want to be known, I want to be known. And that activity gives us the illusion of being known, especially outside of covenant marriage. But what it does, it really dehumanizes us because God made us more than just physical beings. So we're emotional, we're relational, we're spiritual, and all of those could be, need to be cherished together. Don't splinter off parts of yourself to neglect others. God has made you a whole person. So give yourself to someone fully. And that happens in the context of marriage. So now back to our bride after she's waxed eloquent about her groom. And her description, uh, she, she convinces the ladies, her, her, her girlfriends, that her beloved is worth pursuing. And here's their response. We'll just read uh, slowly verses 1 to 3. Verse 1. Where has your beloved gone? A most beautiful among women. Where has your beloved turned? That we may seek to find him. So I think this answer, this question is kind of funny because, you know, if she knew where he was, she wouldn't be talking to you. <laughs> and so I'm just like, this, you're, you're, these, these girls are no help. And so like, <laughs> if she knew, anyway, I just, uh, next, you know. <laughs> uh, but this, this woman, this, this beloved, she's more spiritual than me. She's more, uh, she took this dim-witted question in my view, and she had this eureka moment. Because, and we see this in verse 2, it says, uh, verse 2, my beloved has gone down to his garden to the bed of spices to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. And so, so this is where this sort of dreamlike state sort of helps us a little bit because he left and we don't know where he went, but eventually she just kind of finds him in the garden, the place where he should have been all along. And so we know this garden imagery by now is no secret to us. She is the garden, and this language has strong uh, connections with lovemaking, and the lilies will just say references, parts of her anatomy. You can read that by yourself in chapter 4, verse 5. And so we're we're reaching the final stage of the cycle that I talked about. We saw her, uh, him search for her, knocking at the door, and we see her then finding him, and now they are consummating that love once again. And so now we go to verse 3, and it says, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He grazes amongst the lilies. So she's been beaten in the streets. She's been questioned by her friends. And now she and her beloved are back together. So there's, there's I mentioned this before, uh, Bible commentators are all over the place talking about this passage. But one thing they do agree upon is that at this point, there's an emphasis on forgiveness. 
And I'm, you know, people sort of say, okay, the, the woman is the exemplar of forgiveness because uh, she's the hero of this because, you know, she was, um, her man was AWOL, but she still went to find him. Others would say that he's the exemplar of forgiveness because he was where he should have been all along eventually, and she has no reason to, to wonder, and that's why she can say, I am my beloved's, my, and my beloved's is mine. And if I'm honest, I don't, I, I can see going either way. But the important thing is this, is that we have to understand that forgiveness is a significant act of marriage and any other relationship. Forgiveness is so central to what we ought to be about as Christians. In fact, the struggle for sinners to grant forgiveness leaves us desiring that perfect forgiveness, that perfect absolution that's only found in Jesus. The only way that you can actually give this kind of forgiveness is by having received that kind of forgiveness by one who fully knows all that you've ever done, and that's done in Christ Jesus. And so that's where this, 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 this desire is actually met. And so as we begin, or as we conclude, uh, I want to have some points of reflection. I tried to sort of drip some implications all throughout our sermon today, but there's two points I think are just good places to sort of like summarize uh, at the end. And so let's, let's talk about those. Let, let's try to embrace sexual desire as a tutor. So when I was in seminary, I, I, I remember asking God to, to, you know, teach me lessons about dependence and patience and trust and so on. And God chose to teach me lessons uh, through one of the most important things to me at the time, and that was my studies. I, I came all the way across the country to pursue ministry, to pursue preparation for that ministry. And so uh, I was asking God to answer my prayers, but he actually used my studies as the means to teach me. I was furious at God. Don't use my schoolwork to teach me a lesson. In my mind, that area was, it was off limits for any lesson. And I think that many of us treat intimacy in the same way. God sanctify me, but use any area but this one. So in your celibacy or in your marriage where you feel like your desires are unmet, open yourself up to what God can be teaching you through your journey or your struggles towards righteousness. What could God be telling you with these desires? We, we all have those desires. This is baseline for all of us. This is a, a major theme in this book. What are my desires teaching me? What are they telling me? What sort of sinful things are going on in my life? What, what are the areas that I need to take heed of because my desires are burning in such a way that are not righteous? And so even in that, God is working to teach us something about us and himself because he is the one who actually meets those desires. If your desires are not met by the Lord Jesus, it's telling you something about those desires. And so living righteously is truly a sacrifice. But this is what worship is, giving up something good to honor something greater. The second thing is marriage and relationships are actually a search for Jesus. And I know we've been sort of beating around this question the whole time, but the question that I have for you today is, do you know Jesus? Amen. <laughs> Somebody said yes. <laughs> Jesus knows all that you've done. You are fully known by the Lord Jesus. You are, he knows all of you, and he'll receive you today. I mean, I think, I mean, so many of us are trying to belong. That's a big, like, catchphrase in our, in our culture, belonging. 
We're trying to find that person or that place or that people to belong to. And I'm telling you, like all these other contexts where we're trying to find belonging, even belonging to another person, uh, is just a search for the one who we actually can belong to because he's the one who actually knows you. He's the one that you can just be you, fully you. You don't have to hide anything. This is not dating and like trying to like hide all your warts and stuff like that so that person will just continue to come back. This is not even trying to hide your, your wounds or your brokenness in your own marriage. How tiring is that? There is one who knows you, who knows you fully, and he says, I love you. Receive that love. Receive it from him. Friendship, relationship is a two-way street. Jesus loves you, but you have to receive that love. That's the, that's the going the other way. That's how it's a two-way street. You have to receive that love. Take all the junk. Take all the brokenness. Take all the ways that you've disappointed people. Take all the ways that you've been a disappointment to yourself. Take all the ways that you're trying to so hard to hide who you are fully and just throw it at the foot of the cross because Jesus died for you, knowing all the things. Jesus loves you, and in him you can be known and loved fully and completely. Our peace and rest cannot be found in any human lover. Our souls long to be, be, to be, to do, to be loved deeper and truer, uh, but not even a human marriage can even provide that. We need someone that's 100% faithful because, again, marriage and sexuality point us to something that's far greater. We need someone to stand at the door and continue to knock and continue to knock and faithfully knock because we're fickle, we're broken, but God will restore us. We need the Lord Jesus today. And I pray that because of this time spent in this passage, because of the, the conversations we've had this morning, all the sexual brokenness that you've brought in, that all the baggage that you have, that you can begin to see, okay, the Lord Jesus loves you, knowing about all that stuff, and hopefully we can have a better understanding of what to do with all these desires. Because they're met fully in the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for the opportunity to sit under your word. We're grateful for the fact that you have met our deepest desire. And God, I pray that we would not look to anything else, be it marriage or sex or whatever, to fulfill the desire that those point us to, and it's our need to be fully known by you. So God, I pray for those who are struggling today in this area. I pray that you would give them resilience and righteousness. I pray that you would undergird them with your grace by the power of your Holy Spirit. Allow them to see that their desires ought to be set on you, and even the, those other desires that have clouded their vision will be put in their place. God, I, I do thank you for the gift of sexuality. I do pray that you would allow those who are in this room to steward it well. I do pray, though, that you would situate that appropriately in their lives in a way that you would be pleased. God, we thank you for this uh, metaphor. We thank you for the illustration of, uh, of intimacy and how it does point us to our need for the deepest uh, possible intimacy with you. So I pray that we would experience joy in pursuing righteousness, even in this area where our culture is just so out of whack. So thank you, Lord. Send us, uh, uh, allow your spirit to undergird us in this, uh, in this 
walk towards righteousness. And so we thank you for all of it in your precious name. Amen.